We're going to spend time in God's Word today, and we're going to, uh, I hope, really be impacted. I I hope uh, today God's Word comes alive to you, and I hope God's Word makes an impact in your heart. So uh, as we turn to it, let's pray. Let's ask God to be at work again this morning. Gracious God, we're thankful for uh, time together. Thank you for every single person who's watching on, uh, on their television or computer, Lord, people eager for you and for more of you. And we pray together now, Lord, that uh, you would speak again as we ask so often. We pray, Lord, that this would be a time when your Holy Spirit would take the words of this book and bring them to life and uh, make the impact that you wish to make. So we give you this time, Lord. Uh, We invite you to work. We are open and we're listening. And we ask you to speak. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I feel the need this week uh, to speak to the crisis that has unfolded in the United States this past week and indeed around the world. Step away from our uh, regular series for a little while and we'll come back to that, but to think about what has happened since the death of a man named George Floyd. Um, I'm sure, like me, many of you were really troubled uh, seeing that picture of a police officer on George Floyd's neck, uh, knowing that by doing so, that this man lying on the ground uh, pleading for help and and the capacity to breathe, uh, that it would kill him and that he would soon die. It's a terrible thing, a terrible thing to have happened and a terrible thing to watch, especially so for me when I discovered that George Floyd was a brother in Christ, Um, someone who was a follower of Jesus, who was living his life in ministry to care for people in downtown Minnesota and the disadvantaged, disadvantaged areas and seeking to bring the Lord and, and goodness and, and health and well-being into that place. Um, what has happened, uh, as many of you will know, obviously, if not all, that this has incited what has been described as um, the unfolding of historic rage. I couldn't agree more with that term. For African Americans who have been recipients of racism and, um, and of racist killings over generations, the response has been dramatic and, and remarkable. It's people saying, enough, we don't, we don't want to take this anymore, this needs to end. Uh, definitely there's a problem, there's an issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, it has gone on and on. Just a few weeks ago it came to light that a young black man who was jogging um, in an area that some thought he shouldn't have been in, essentially, was gunned down in cold blood, murdered. Um, just because he was black. And something needs to be done, and and we're hoping and we're praying, obviously, at this time, that real change might come, uh, come in a way that is necessary, in a way that is good. What I want to do today is go to Scripture to discover what God wants, to discover what it means for his kingdom. We've talked about that a lot in recent days, to come on earth. The will of God to be played out in society, in, in relationships, in the lives of people. And I would really long for you to come to know what the Lord wants for your life, for your part in making things better, in discovering how you and I can contribute to things changing. So I'm going to start by going to the classic verse in the Bible, which describes the reality that all people are equal before God. Genesis, uh, sorry, Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, and it says this, Sorry, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one 
in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's a statement where Paul takes three prominent sources of, of, of if you would, bigotry or prejudice and even racism in, in his day, and he speaks to, to them. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Uh, these people had disdain for one another. I, I realize today, I don't know particularly what the Gentiles thought toward the Jews. I know that the Jews despised the Gentiles. And, and I think it probably went both ways because that pattern has carried on even to our own day in the minds of some. Um, one group, the Jews for sure, thinking they were superior to the Gentiles. They were God's people. They were the people of Yahweh. They had somehow privilege and, and benefit and, and thought of themselves as, as better. And it says that there is neither slave nor free. Free people had power over the slaves whom they owned. And they would use the slaves for their own benefit, no matter what it might mean for the slave, how hard life might become for them. And then it says, nor is there male and female. Here, men had power over women in this society. Husbands had power over wives. Men, it was thought, were better than women. And the women had to serve the needs of the men as a result. In all of these groups, essentially, what we, what we see, if you would, are the marks of racism or of bigotry or of prejudice. One group thinking itself better than another. another. One group having and using power over the other group in order to benefit itself uh, regardless of the negative impact it would have on the people who were being used. What Paul does is he comes along and we have to really note it. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female. We are all one in Christ. What he is saying, and he emphasizes it three times, there is no difference in the kingdom of God. There, there, there are no distinctions which are so prominent in this world of ours, but not in Christ. No one is better than another. No one can look down upon another or another group of people thinking that, that they are better than, than, than the other. Certainly there is no one to dominate or use the other for their own sake. This is contrary, as we've discussed in recent weeks, to the way of the kingdom, the way of servanthood, and the way of love. See, what Paul is saying, essentially, these distinctions which he defines, Jew, Gentile, or slave, free, male, female, what Paul is saying is these distinctions do not exist in the kingdom of God, for they don't exist in the mind of God. So that it doesn't matter the color of a person's skin. It doesn't matter what their ethnic background might be. It doesn't matter what their gender is. And you can add all kinds of distinctions to this. It doesn't matter economic or sociological class. What Paul is saying, these distinctions are a non-entity in the kingdom. For we are all one in Christ. It's a beautiful message of equality across the board. Now this is so, of course, because... God has made all people in his image. Pastor Joyce referenced this on our uh, fireside chat this past Wednesday and, and did so well in, in verbalizing this. But I want to go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 and read these verses for you. And I want you to listen for, and, uh, uh, um, for the equality that is defined here. Verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God says, said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, 
and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This is Adam and Eve, right? This is, this is humanity. And it's not one human being or one group of people ruling over others. We are to rule over the, the birds and the livestock and the animals, but we don't rule over one another, dominating and controlling and using. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Do you hear the equality written into that verse? Male and female, God created us. And in so doing, we have been made in the image of God. We are people, every single human being, we are people who, who reflect in a very real way, to some degree, the reality of who God is. You know, a real key to, to kind of digging into this word image comes to us from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a very old Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the word image in the Septuagint comes from the Greek word icon. And in some traditions, icons are used. We don't tend to use them in our, in our uh, faith tradition, but what an icon is is usually a work of art. Now, that's notable. That's important. It's a painting or a, a sculpture, usually. And as people meditate on these icons, as people look at them, as they gaze upon them and, and think about them, the idea is that these icons help people see God. They, it helps people understand some aspect of who God is. And, and if you dig into that understanding, you recognize that what, being, what is being said is that each person is an icon. Each person, if you would, is a representation of God. You see God's reflection, God's image in them. And race, skin color, you know, these things are, are a complete irrelevancy to that reality. Now think about this. Icons, people as a result. We are created by God. People are a work of art that God has formed. And as such, every single human being has value and has worth and has inherent dignity. There are no exceptions to that reality. And my friends, it's based on those realities, those truths, that we are to treat each and every human being we encounter. And we are to love everyone as God loves everyone. And we are to be good to people and, 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 and to honor them for who they are, for who God has made them to be. Now we're going to look at an incident in the life of Jesus to see how the kingdom reality is to play itself out. And it's a story of, of an instance where Jesus encounters a Samaritan. Now you might know this, you may or may not, so I'll describe it to you just briefly, but Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. Um, this is racism, pure and simple. You'll remember if you were with us during the story campaign when we talked about the grand narrative of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation and, and discovered the God story that he was playing out. At one point in, in Israel, the, the nation of Israel was divided in two. There was the northern kingdom and then in the south was the kingdom of Judah. And at a certain point, the Assyrians came down from the north and they conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, and took all those people back to serve them, to be part of their uh, culture and country. And those people were assimilated in to that country. And the Jewish people intermarried with the Assyrian people. And eventually what came from that were the Samaritans. And, and the Jewish folks of the day, of Jesus' day, literally looked at them as half-breeds. 
They held on to some of the faith that they had held hundreds of years prior, but it had gotten mingled in with other beliefs and practices, and the Jewish people despised them because of it. And into this scenario, Jesus comes and encounters the Samaritan woman. And I'm going to read that story to you from, or some of it actually, from John chapter 4. We're going to read from verses 4 to 14. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because uh, we're, we're not going to talk about the whole text or all the meaning of the text, but I want to pick out, of course, the relevant passage for us today. So verse 4 of John chapter 4. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But Jesus answered her, answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you, a, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, we have got to take note of Jesus' interaction with this woman, this Samaritan woman, because in it, we see the heart of God and we see his example for us and quite frankly his instruction for us in terms of us dealing with other races of people. So what can we learn? Number one, I want to put it this way to you. In this instance, Jesus moved toward this Samaritan woman. He didn't physically do it, but he, he, he moved toward her in the sense of, of initiating a relationship with her. Um, and in so doing, he treated her with, with value and with worth and with dignity. As someone who was important to God and loved by God. You see, this was the opposite of ra racism. Uh, one of the realities of racism is rather than moving toward people, when we encounter them, we tend to move away from them. We, we think, this person's different than me, and I don't know about this person and how they look and how they talk and what they're doing. Sometimes we think they're not as good as we are. And we back away. We withdraw very often. Ever done that? Is that something that you can relate to? I want to tell you, in this instance, Jesus would have known all the norms of his culture. He would have known, as this text says, that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. He would have known that Jews hated Samaritans and, and, and would not interact with them in any way. But I want to tell you, he refused to allow the biases and the bigotry of his culture to determine his actions and keep him from entering into a relationship with his woman. And I would suggest to you, just because he was God, that he did so out of love, just so characteristic of Jesus' life. 
You've got to remember, this was God in the flesh. This is the Son of God, the one who had the very nature of God in his being. And he knew this woman needed to believe in the Messiah. That's what this passage is really about. That's the primary teaching here. He knew that her life was a mess. He knew that a relationship with God would heal her brokenness. And he knew that a relationship with God through himself, the Messiah, would lead her into an experience of eternal life. Mm. It's important to note that after she had come to believe in Jesus and run into the town and told many people about Christ and brought them back, and after they had encountered Jesus and they too came to believe, they invited Jesus and his disciples to stay with them for two more days, which they did. I want to tell you, my friends, that would have been shocking for any Jew to have heard about. That would have been unheard of. You went into their homes? You sat at their tables and you ate meals with them? You've gotten to know them? <laughs> You've become part of their lives and they part of your life? I want to tell you, my friends, Jesus knew the norm but he refused to, to follow in the way of racism, to follow in the way of prejudice or bigotry. He chose to bring the kingdom of God, to, 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 to recognize that there are no distinctions between people of different race or religion or, 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 or color. There, there are uh, no realities which are to divide us, for we are one we are people created in the image of God, loved by God, treasured by God. And that's how Jesus functioned in this instance. I just want to pause for a moment and, and have you reflect a little bit uh, on your own life. How do you relate to people of other races, colored skin, uh, color of skin, ethnic backgrounds, you tend to move forward or you tend to back away? Tend to engage them in life and in relationship or tend to leave them alone? You see, there's something that I've become aware of in, in recent days. I think we're all learning a lot and we're thinking a lot, but it's called unconscious bigotry. The idea that sometimes we act in ways that are racist or bigoted and sometimes we don't even know it. We don't recognize it. If I were to ask Many, many, many people of faith, followers of Jesus, are you a racist? They would say, oh, no, 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 definitely not. Are, are you prejudiced against particular groups? No, no. We're to love everybody. Are you a bigot? No, not me. But sometimes there's an unconscious bigotry that causes us to ask, act in a way that's different than the way Jesus acted in that moment. And Jesus is calling us forward. He's saying, follow me in this. Engage me in this, as you engage in relationship with others. I want to tell you a story. Uh, I grew up in Midland, Ontario, in the southern end of Georgian Bay as a child. Um, went to what was then called public school or elementary school uh, through my young years there at Parkview Public School. Um, what happened in that day is that Aboriginal kids from a nearby reserve uh, called Christian Island, that was a large island in Georgian Bay, well, they would come midweek and be boarded, and they would come to school during the week to, to learn. And then on the weekends, they would go home to be with their families. Now, they would go home literally to third world conditions. The first time I went there, I was shocked. Um, it was no better than what we've often seen in the worst conditions in Nicaragua. It was bad. But anyway, these kids 
were the kids who were feared on the playground. These kids were the toughest kids out there. These are the kids, if they chose, who would beat up the white kids, the boys. Um, unless, of course, you became their friend, and I selfishly did, often out of self-preservation. But I want to tell you the truth, and it wasn't spoken that I remember. But we looked down on those kids. We thought we were better than them because we were white. We thought somehow they weren't as good as us. Well, let me jump ahead 50 years with my story. Last summer, I was in Perry Sound on holidays, and I was pumping gas at a shell station on the outer um, layer of two pumps. You know, and after I had finished, I, I was putting my uh, uh, gas pump back in the, in the holder, and I, I saw a car pull in, and I began to walk toward the kiosk beyond the inner pump. And this fellow who had pulled uh, the car into the inner pump gets out of the car, and he's a, a, a big Aboriginal man. I mean, he had to be 6'6", easily. Uh, and, and he was built. Was, he's probably 230, 240, one of those guys, you know. But he got out of the car, and, and he had a big smile on his face. And, and as I walked past, he looked at me, and he acknowledged me, and he said, Hey, how you doing? You know what I did? I looked down. And I didn't say a thing. Um, something inside me caused to treat that man both differently and badly. That shocked me. It really did. Even at the, at the moment, I, I said, why would you do that? And I, I, I gave it thought and I asked the question, why? What's going on in, inside your heart that would cause you to act in that way? Well, I came to an answer in time. And it's essentially this, that something of the 9 or 10-year-old little boy, Chris Little, from Parkview Public School, 50 years prior, emerged. And in that moment, that big Aboriginal guy became a threat to me. Came out of my history. And I think the reason I didn't acknowledge him or greet him, or not, the reason I wasn't kind to him, the reason I looked down was fear. And I want to tell you, in that moment, I discovered unconscious bigotry, alive and well in my heart. You see, my friends, too often it's there. <laughs> too often it's there. And we have got to, if we can, unpack some of that dynamic and know why we act sometimes the way we do, whether we back away, whether we look away. I would suggest to you, often it's fear, as I was then afraid, without reason to be. Um, we are often afraid of what we don't know. We're afraid of the unfamiliar. We're afraid of what's different. But I've got to tell you, my friends, that's why it is so incredibly important that we choose with great intentionality to move toward people who are different than us. We've got to choose to move into relationships with people and get to know them, invite them into our lives, and there discover that they really, truly are people of worth and of value and of dignity. And they're people not to be afraid of. In that context, my friends, we can learn to respect and yes, as Jesus did, even love people who are different than ourselves. 
So, very literally, what I'm suggesting, I guess, is that we move toward people and we unpack our hearts to discover if there's any unconscious bigotry at play in us. And then I want to suggest that we work and that we pray for change. See, Jesus, on the day that he encountered the Samaritan woman, chose to do what he did. And in doing it, he brought change. Not only in her life, but in the life of the people of Sychar, by faith in, in God and in, in him as Messiah. Think about those disciples who were with Jesus, who also, it seems, spent two days in a Samaritan town getting to know people that they hadn't probably ever spoken to or associated with. It was something intentional that Jesus chose to break down the barriers, to remove the distinctions, to treat everybody as one. And I want to say this to you, the only way change is going to come in our hearts or in our society even is essentially when those who are in the majority position, those who are the prominent race, can I put it that way, those who have power to make change, do so. It's in our hands. It's for us to engage. Now, let me ask again, <clears throat> do you know people or are you engaged relationally with people of another race, another skin color, another ethnic background? And if you're not, can I ask you to act this week and get to know somebody? Could you say hi to a neighbor? Could you introduce yourself to a neighbor? Maybe somebody that you've left alone for too long. Could, could you ask them into your home for a meal? Somebody at work maybe. So, somebody that you have encountered somehow. Invite them into your home for a meal and sit down and get to know them and offer them Christian hospitality, the love of God. Could you become friends with someone of a different ethnic background? Really become friends with them. Develop the relationship. Because if you will do these things with intentionality, you will be acting like Jesus Christ, who is living out the principles of his kingdom, who is showing us the way the way for us to follow in, who was calling us to act in obedience to himself and to his Father. There are lots of things that we can do. You know, I've never been more tempted to protest anything in my life. I've never protested anything in my life. But I'm tempted to, after seeing that man killed on the streets of Minnesota. That was so wrong. Protest is, has its place. We can engage politically. We can engage in community uh, contexts and, and forums in order to promote equality in the way that honors God. But we have to get busy. But can I say this to my friends? We have to pray. We have to pray. You know, the most powerful force in the world is prayer. What do you think of that? Again, I think a lot of Jesus' followers, Bible-reading Christians, say, of course, nothing more powerful. I think if we actually believed that with all of our hearts, we'd be praying a whole lot more than we do. But I want to tell you, my friends, prayer is the most powerful force in the world because it moves God to action. 
And we need to begin to pray in this context. We need to pray, God, change my heart. Unpack my heart that I might see what's there so that I might change. God, change my mind. Let me know your truth. Help me break free from the cultural baggage that I carry so that I can really become a citizen of the kingdom and think as Jesus thought. We need to pray that God change our culture so that his kingdom comes and entrenches itself here in a powerful way. We need to pray that violence stops. We need to pray that policing practices change where they need to change. We need to pray that legal systems change where biases, biases exist. And you know why? Because the Lord Jesus doesn't want people whom he loves to be harmed. He doesn't want people who have been created in the image of God, created by the handiwork of God, people who are, are, have inherent dignity because they are made in his image, he doesn't want them hurt. He wants them respected. He wants them honored. And he wants them loved. I'm going to finish by reading a passage to you from Revelation. It's chapter 7. And it's verses 9 to 12. Now, this is John the Apostle. Um, same, same man who wrote the Gospel of John. He's on the island of Patmos and he has this vision of heaven. This is the, this is the kingdom in its fullness. This is, this is the epitome of what can be when God's rule and reign is known. Listen to this. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out, cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. My friends, what an incredible text. What an incredible vision of the reality of the kingdom of God in its fullness. Not one race, not one language group, not one people but people from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language were standing before the throne of God, worshiping him. That's what God wants. People who have come into his presence and who have come to know him, have come to love him, who have come to recognize his worthiness, his worth, his being worthy of worship. People who are one in his presence, having no distinctions, Loving and worshiping God. I want to, to finish by saying this. In this instance, we the church, you and I, we can't do nothing. We have to do something. You might have heard the phrase, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And maybe for too long we've done nothing. But now it's time to act. And now it's time to pray. My friends, 
we need to think like the Lord. And we need to act like the Lord. And we need to love like the Lord Jesus as he loved this woman of Samaria. Will you act this week? Will you move toward someone? Will you seek to uncover unconscious bias? Will you act and will you pray that equality seeps into this nation of ours in a way that it never has before? So that there are no longer any distinctions. So that we can love people as Jesus did and treat them as our equals. This, I say to you, is the will of God for you and for me. It is the will of God for our church. It is what we are called to. It is what the followers of Jesus do. You know, as you um, go your way this week, you will have opportunity to be like Jesus, <laughs> to think like him, to act like him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Go into this world. Here is your commissioning. Go into this world to love all people in the name of Christ, to give them dignity, to value them and, and recognize their worth by inviting them into your life, by advocating for equality <laughs> so that this world becomes a different place according to the will of God. To that end, I, I give you God's blessing in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit that you might be the people he calls you to be in your heart, in your mind, and in your living. Amen.